Thanks, Lewis. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 24. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21. Acts 24, 1 through 21. And let me, uh, let me pray for us before we begin to look at God's Word. God, we do pray today again, like every week, that you would teach us Lord, that you would challenge us and change us, that we would be different because of your grace, power, and your word, that we would learn, and not just intellectually, but that we would know you and your ways better. In Jesus' name, amen. You know what it's like when you, uh, when you do something, you say something, and you immediately feel Something on the inside that tells you that you were a total jerk. You ever have that experience? Oh, that's a regular experience for me, actually. Uh, in fact, just like a couple of weeks ago, uh, there were a few of us were talking on a Sunday out here. And these are all people that are you know, members, and we know each other, love each other. They're really good. Uh, but I walked away from that short interaction. There was no problem. There was no drama. There was no argument. But I walked away, and as soon as I walked away... I was like, I, ooh, I felt this sharp pain, this sharp internal pain in my mind or maybe in my heart or in my stomach. It was hard to pinpoint it, but it was on the inside. And, and I, I walked away realizing like, you, the word is, you were rather curt in that exchange. And you know, you talk to yourself, I was like, I'm not that curt, curt, like this, I don't even talk that way. What do you mean? I don't even know what that means, curt. And, there, and I was like talking, I'm like, no, you know, because I was talking to like one of the nicest and most sincere Christian men that I know, John Harness. Where are you at, John? Oh, he's in the back. Okay. Susan's here, his wife. Anyways, I was like, I was just kind of, I was like, I don't know what, it, it was inappropriate. I was just like not cool. And you know what it's like? Like you've, you've done something or you've said something and, you know, you're not really even sure did I violate a biblical principle? I don't know, but I was not cool, right? I, I, was, I was unkind, something, it wasn't right. And it was bothering me, and it, it wouldn't go away. It wouldn't go away. And you know what that's like. Now, if you don't address that feeling, and by the way, that feeling is coming from something we call conscience, right? It's our conscience. So my conscience was telling me, hey, dummy, you did a bad thing. And I'm like, well, I, don't, I don't think I did. I don't know. Maybe I'm trying to argue with it. And I got about a third into the worship service, and it bothered me. I had to go and apologize to John, and I was just starting to say, hey, I'm sorry, I think I was, I was a jerk that, in that interaction, and of course, because he's amazing, he was like, what are you talking about? I, don't worry about it, all, I love you, everything's good. I'm like, I love you too, man, I'm so sorry. So that, that is your conscience, right? We all have that. We all have a conscience. Your, your conscience is a human part of you. It's an essential part to your humanity. It's one of the things that separates us from every other created being here. And your conscience is such a critical part of who you are that when we stop responding to it or when we allow it to get unhealthy, we become very unhealthy. In fact, what I have found in my life and in the lives of many people that I've known, sometimes the truly unhappy and unhealthy people, sometimes it is purely a result of them not responding to their conscience until their conscience becomes unhealthy itself. So, a healthy conscience 
is essential to a healthy life and a healthy faith. We're going to see that in this passage, okay? Here's the principle. I'll give you the principle now. We're going to come back to it at the end. A healthy conscience is reformed by the Spirit and informed by the Scriptures. A healthy conscience is reformed by the Spirit and informed by the Scriptures. We're going to see this in this passage. We're in the middle of this lengthy experience of Paul where you know, Paul has, has come back from a missionary journey, right, where he's preaching the gospel and establishing churches and strengthening and encouraging Christians and correcting churches when they get out of whack. He's doing all of that. He's reaching more and more Gentiles, non-Jews, with the gospel. And so there's a lot going on. He comes back from his third missionary journey, comes back to Jerusalem, and when he gets home, he finds that there are a group of his own people, people that he loves and wants to reach with the gospel, but there's a group of of, of the Jewish people who don't like him, who hate him, who have been slandering him, lying about him, making up stories, and he winds up getting assaulted, and then he gets arrested, even though he hasn't done anything wrong, and now they're they're trying to prosecute him, and there's there's this mob mentality among these Jewish leaders who want Paul dead. They're conspiring to kill him. They're trying to push him through the system so they can have him executed. And if you've been reading this and you've been walking with, us, walking with us through it, you realize that this has taken a long time. And sometimes when people are reading this, they get bored. They're like, oh, long, why is it taking so long? Let's look, this is lots of talking, lots of arguing. Can't we, just, can't we just move it along? Well, how do you think Paul feels? You're bored reading it. Paul has to live it. Paul, Paul wants to be adjudicated. He wants, like, let's go ahead. Let's put all the facts out there. Let's, let's deal with these charges because Paul knows that he's innocent. Well, where we left off is um, they were conspiring to kill Paul. They, were gonna, they had people set up, ready. 70 people were going to kill him. And uh, so he is sent to the tribune, sends him to the governor, this Roman governor Felix, so that he can be tried there. In other words, the tribune didn't want to deal with the drama and the potential violence, so he, he sends Paul down to Felix so that it can be taken care of there. That's where we're picking up. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the passage, right? We'll look at the accusations that are made against Paul and Paul's defense. So we'll look at the passage, but then I want us to shift immediately to this principle that we're talking about here today, about the conscience. So first, the accusations. It all begins in uh, 24 verses 1 and 2. It says, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. All right, we can just stop there. So before we even get into the accusations, let's just note who the players are. Ananias is the high priest, right? So the high priest, uh, the representative head of the Jewish people there, right? So there's the high priest is there and the elders. This means that there is a, a, a portion of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was like the, the, the Supreme Court, the high court among the Jewish people. So there's a portion of them that are there uh, for, these, for these proceedings. And they've got uh, a lawyer, Tertullus, right? So they got a lawyer, let the lawyer do the talking, and the lawyer is going to do most of the talking for them. So that's who is gathered there. So they're before Felix, and the charges come really starting in uh, verse 2, and it runs through, I think, verse 9. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you, and you're speaking to the governor, right? Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. There's a word for this kind of guy. I'm not going to say it, but you know what it is. This guy's blowing smoke. This guy is flattering. 
It's so gross. In fact, by the way, um, he's speaking on behalf of, of Ananias, right? Ananias, the high priest, is so in love with the Roman government, he ult ultimately is assassinated uh, for his cooperation with the Roman government. Anyways, so there's lots of flattery going on early on, and... Um, and then he gets to it. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Okay, then let's get going. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Those are the... Basic accusations. Okay, so we get beyond the flattery, and they say what? Well, they say, well, Paul's inciting violence. You know, he, he, is, he is creating riots. Wherever he goes, he gets the Jews all stirred up and, and starts riots. This is, this is not the case. He does not incite violence. He does not provoke people to violence. He's not leading people in violence. Now, there has been violent acts committed against him, illegal and unrighteous, so he's not inciting violence, but that's the accusation. They call him a sect leader, and this is a reference to him being a leader in the church, right? The way. They say that he profaned the temple. We've talked about that in the past, right? One of the accusations was is that he was bringing Gentiles into the temple where they do not belong, where they cannot go. Only the Jewish people, and really only the Jewish men past a certain point, can go into the temple. But he's bringing in these Gentiles, and that's forbidden. And, of course, Paul didn't do that. If Paul did do something about that, we would have lots of evidence for it because it would have been outrageous, and it would have been dealt with swiftly. But that's one of the accusations, that he's, he's bringing Gentiles into the temple. And of course, the elders are all amening it at the end there in verse nine. They're like, yes, yes, this is true. Good, good job. They like, yeah, that's a good summary of what happened. So those are the accusations. Now, Paul responds with, I love his defense. I love his defense because there, he, he, he basically says, uh, he denies the charges. He's like, these are all lies, except for one. And he, he, sort, of, he sort of affirms one of them. You can look at verses, uh, Paul's denial, denials in, in 10 through 13. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, and I look, now look at how the difference in how he addresses the governor. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Respect. So he gives respect. He's like, I know who you are. I'm not going to play games. I'm happy to give my defense. So... He says, uh, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you by what they now bring up against me. So they're lying. Like, they're making this stuff up. Ask around. Look into it. Google it, right? Like, he's like, you can verify that I did not do these things. But then he admits something here. He says, but this I do confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. 
But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything to say against me. Or else let, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul makes this plea. Number one, I'm innocent. These charges are bogus. Number two, yeah, I'm a part of the way. You call it a sect. It is the church. That's what the church was called, the way. Right? Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm guessing it's probably from that. The way. He's like, I'm a part of that. And we're not weird. We're not out of bounds. We're not heretics. Not that Rome even cares, but he's trying to say, listen, they're coming against me, even though we observe like the laws of the land. Uh, we honor God's word. We read God's word. We believe God's word. And then he points out, he goes, listen, there is, there is a, a part of a problem here, and that is uh, I, I preach the resurrection of the dead, which many of them believe. And this is the problem. You see, the Sanhedrin was divided. We've talked about this. The Sanhedrin was divided. There were Pharisees who believed that there will be a resurrection of the dead, and then there were Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees in that case were more closely tied to what the Bible actually has to say. Now, Paul is in line with them, and so that is a part of the controversy that is surrounding Paul with the Sanhedrin. So, Paul basically says here at the end, he goes, listen, let, let's hear the evidence. If they've got something against me, let them bring it out. But for me, Paul says in verse 16, my conscience is clear. I do everything I can to maintain a clear conscience between God and man. I'm trying to keep it real, right? That's what that should mean. I'm trying to be transparent and honest and right. Keep my conscience clear between God and man. And Paul will have to wait because... He's in that season where there's just a whole lot of waiting and suffering. No nice, quick, clean resolutions for Paul. And so we have to hit pause here as well. And I want us to take a, take a moment here to consider this principle. A healthy conscience is reformed by the Spirit and informed by the Scriptures, right? That principle. I want us to hold on to it. Now, to get to that, we have to define what the conscience is, right? We like to define terms here at Redeemer. I think that's really helpful. And we all kind of know intuitively what the conscience is because we've all used the expression like, ooh, i got a guilty conscience or he's got a really guilty conscience. It means you feel a certain way about having done a certain thing, right? You feel bad about what you've done or said. And so... The conscience is this internal instrument or mechanism. It's a spiritual thing. It's a, it, it, it's a spiritual, mental, immaterial part of us. It's the internal instrument that testifies to you about your true values, and it is an instrument that judges you for your actions. So let's just go over it, make sure we're clear. Your conscience is that immaterial instrument it's internal. That testifies to you. It testifi you're testifying to yourself, essentially, right? It testifies to you what your true values are, what you really think is right and wrong, and it judges you for your actions. It'll say, well done, or you blew it. We see this in Scripture in a couple of places. Let me just give you a couple of quick ones. Romans chapter 2, verse uh, 15 in Romans 2, Paul's arguing uh, in the beginning part of Romans, everybody is a sinner. There are no exceptions, right? The most faithful religious Jew is a sinner, and the most out-of-bounds, like, 
believing crazy things from a biblical perspective, heathen, pagan, worshiping many different deities, uh, they are sinners too. We're all sinners. And in process of doing that, he, you know, people would think like, well, how can they be judged if they don't have the Bible or they don't have access to God's word? Why would they be blamed for worshiping false deities? And so Paul's explaining that, no, they have a conscience. They know what's right and wrong. It's built in. And they're rejecting it. They're pushing back against it. Here's what he says in Romans 2.15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So that's what your conscience does. Accuses or excuses. You blew it, well done. That's what your conscience does. It's built into us all. It doesn't mean it always works perfectly. In fact, it oftentimes doesn't work perfectly. It's easy to mess up our consciences. But we have one, and it's designed to work in a particular way. Uh, let me give you another example here of a, of a conscience. Romans 9, 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, right? So Paul, Paul can't just say, hey, listen, I'm going to say something. He, he needs to essentially say, I swear to God. Like, that's how important this is to Paul. I swear to God, and my conscience is not conflicted. Like, my conscience is clear here as I, as, I, as I say this to you, so please hear me. So your conscience accuses you or excuses you. That's what, it's, that's what it's designed to do. So if you have a clear conscience, you've done something that is right, you're excused. You are affirmed in your actions. That's what a clear conscience is. A clear conscience means you are affirmed in your actions. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 for our boast, Paul says, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity and not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. So what, what, one of the things that excites Paul, right, is that he is able to serve God's people and, and, and do the work that God has called him to do, and he does so with a clear conscience. He's not conflicted about it. He's not pretending to be what he's not. doesn't have any evil motivations in it. He has a clear conscience. Hebrews 13, 18 says this, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So a clear conscience, a clear conscience affirms you in your actions. Now for the Christian, this is particularly important because we talk a lot about conviction and the work of the Holy Spirit and all of that, and that is true. We believe the Holy Spirit indwells every believer and that the Holy Spirit convicts us. But one of the primary means by which the Holy Spirit works in us is through the conscience, right? We are convicted of our waywardness or our rebellion or our corruption. So, and, and then we are oftentimes, uh, you know, vindicated by our conscience, right? Uh, we are excused, right, from, from these false accusations from the world when, when we know that we're doing the right thing. So here, let me give you one passage here to consider. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says this, the aim of our charge is love, right? So Paul's like, listen, the, our big command is, is God's great commandment. It's love, right, to love God and to love others. So the, the, the issue, the, the, the charge here is love. But he says this, our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's not enough to go through the external motions of what love looks like, even if it's sacrifice and dedication. It's more than that. It's more than just the action. We know that love is not just emotion, 
But it's also not just devotion. Right? It's, it's a coming together of, of heart and hand for God's glory and the good of others. So the aim of our charge is what? Is love that issues from a pure heart, right? No mixed motives here where it's coming from a place of love and genuineness and a good conscience, right? Knowing that we are doing what is right according to God's will and a sincere faith, a faith that we hold truly, not hypocritically. So the Christian wants a clear conscience. We don't want, we don't want a, a bad conscience, right? We don't want a guilty conscience. I see a guilty conscience, a guilty conscience cries foul, right? Now, that's a good thing. When, the, when your conscience cries foul or throws the red flag, right, if you know sports, I don't, but I know what that is. So when your conscience is saying wrong, foul, that we're, we're immediately told you just transgressed. You did the wrong thing there. Now we get to address it. We get to adjust. We get to repent. So the conscience that is healthy convicts us. A guilty conscience means we are convicted of our actions. A clear conscience means we are affirmed in our actions. A guilty conscience should lead to confession and repentance. So you can have a conscience that works well, and it can be, you will at times be clear and at times feel guilty, but in the end, that's what the conscience is supposed to do. However, the conscience itself can become unhealthy. If the conscience can get out of whack. Here's the thing about the conscience. The conscience tells you essentially, right, like these are what your values are. And when, and when your conscience says, don't do this or, or do this, you should respond to it positively, right? So the conscience says, hey, hey, hey but be careful. I, don't, don't do that. Listen to your conscience. Scripture's clear on this. If you go against your conscience, you're sinning. And there's a danger in going against your conscience. Eat, listen, let's take it out of the realm of what the Bible says, right? Because the conscience should be informed by Scripture. But let's just say, I just had a, a friend bring it up here after the first service, that, uh, that they, were they, had to, they were forced to make a decision. And it isn't a decision that the Bible speaks to, right? So you can't say chapter, verse, or even principle, this is what anybody has to do in this particular situation. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to follow their conscience, Right? They're going to they're gonna do what they think is best, what they think is right in this particular situation, and to violate that, they would feel wrong. They would feel that internal sharp pain. And so they, they're going to follow it, and that's good. That, that's fine. But there are ways in which our conscience begins to act improperly, and it can go off the rails. And now there's a, there's a spectrum here. On, on, on one end, you have a weak conscience, and on the other end, you have a seared conscience. So the weak conscience... This is a person whose conscience is telling them something is wrong when it isn't actually wrong. Now, again, this could be a matter of indifference or personal preference, but sometimes we see it in Scripture that a weak conscience is an overly sensitive conscience that sees sin where there is no sin and even takes it so far as to impress that standard on others. It's called the binding of other people's consciences. So somebody who has a, has a weak conscience is overly sensitive. They wind up declaring some things to be sin that the Bible says are not sin, and they are oftentimes tempted to imp impose that on other people. 
In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is addressing this issue of food sacrificed to idols. And food sacrificed to idols doesn't make much sense to us today because we just go to the grocery store and it's all sacrificed to Satan, so we don't see an option. But back then, there were options, right? Some food was sacrificed to Satan and some food was not, right? I'm oversimplifying, but it's the truth. All right, so, and so Christians would go into the market and they would buy food and some food was sacrificed to the devil, sacrificed to pagan deities, to demons, and... Uh, Paul's like, yeah, that happens, and you can go out there, you can buy that, and if you eat that, you're fine. Your conscience, if it doesn't bother you, you're good. There's nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to Satan. That's Paul's argument. But if your conscience tells you not to do that because of your former association with idolatry, like people would just look at it and be like, ooh, that's the God I used to worship. I do not want to eat that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Then what does Paul say? Do not violate your conscience, right? So keep it real. Keep a clear conscience. The problem comes when those with a strong or robust conscience looks at the one with a weak conscience and says, hey, dummy, you better eat that food and stop denying what God gave you. Well, that's inappropriate because Paul's already said, let the one with a weak conscience obey his conscience. But then on the other hand, it happens with those with a weak conscience. They look at the person with a strong conscience and say, you should not be eating that. That's Satan meat. And you eat Satan meat, that's how demons get into your body. They always go a little weird with the theology. That's how Satans get into your life, to the meat sacrificed to idols. But here's what, here's what Paul says about this idea of a weak conscience in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. He says, Not all possess this knowledge of freedom that it is okay to eat meat, but some, through former association with idols, they eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So here, the, the point is, is a weak conscience is not sin, but it means that you are overly sensitive in certain areas. And so to transgress your conscience there is to, in a, in a sense, sin, because you are doing what you believe is wrong. And Paul says, don't do that. Your conscience is defiled when you actually do it. Now, that's one end of the spectrum, and it can go bad from there. You can be a healthy Christian with a weak conscience in these areas, but it can go wrong. The other end of the spectrum from a weak conscience is a seared conscience or a calloused conscience. And if a, if a weak conscience is a, an overly sensitive uh, conscience, one that sees sin where there is no sin, a seared conscience is an undersensitive conscience, a calloused conscience that does not see sin when it's standing right in front of your face. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared and forbid marriage and require absence from food that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The seared or calloused conscience isn't feeling anymore. It's numb. And so... It calls people to do things that are ungodly, inappropriate. It excuses sinful behavior quickly without consequence. And we all know what this is like because we've all developed some calluses on our conscience from time to time. And some of us have gone down that path. But you know what it's like. You do something you've never done before, a sin you've never done before, you feel bad, embarrassed even. Even if nobody knows, you're like, oof. It feels awful. It feels really bad. But if you don't repent, if you don't confess and deal with it, what happens? You're going to do it again because it was kind of fun. And when you do it again, it doesn't bother you as much the second time as it did the first time. That's not so bad. It's not like it's a habit. Twice, big deal. Then we do it again, right? Because three times a charm, I guess. And so you do it again, and it feels not so bad. And before you know it, what was 
painfully convicting and embarrassing is now common everyday occurrence. And then we begin to justify how we live and what we do and make up a different kind of faith. It can go terrible here. See, everyone, everyone has a conscience, everyone. And everyone's conscience points out their failure. Your conscience does that, my conscience does that. Now, sometimes our consciences become really broken, and they don't function the way that they are. And in that case, we are in a, a, a really bad place. Because when your conscience is no longer working in a healthy way, you only slip further and further into error, into malfunction. It's hard. In fact, I don't think you can just pull yourself out of it. I think you need divine intervention there. You see, ultimately what I'm saying here is that the conscience is a good gift that we have broken. We need to be thankful to God for giving us the gift and then go to God to repair it. In other words, we've talked about the conscience. We've talked about a clear conscience and a guilty conscience. We talked about an unhealthy conscience. We need to just touch on a cleansed conscience because this is the starting point for real reformation. In Hebrews Chapter 9, we read this earlier, verses 13 and 14. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Part of our salvation is a cleansed, a renewed, a reformed conscience that works the way that it's supposed to. It's a reformation of humanity. Our humanity is busted up and broken because of our own sin. Salvation is a restoring of that humanity so that the image of God shines more brightly. We look more like our maker. And the conscience is one of those tools that God uses to help us become the people we're supposed to be. We just go a little bit farther. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 22, let us draw near, right? Draw near to God, right? Communion with God, intimacy. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our dead and our bodies washed with pure water. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You know what it is. Some of you really know what it is. Before you come to faith in Christ, there is a burden that everyone carries, a burden. It feels different to all, but we all have it, a burden. It's the burden of sin and guilt. And I've talked to, I can't tell you how many people over the years that aren't followers of Christ, that aren't a part of the church, and I ultimately get them to talk about the reality of frailty, failure, and guilt. And they all feel it. They all experience it. You know, even, even the ones like, oh, I don't regret any, I don't have any regrets in my life. We start to get down to it, and I have yet to find, I'm sure they're out there, but I have yet to find somebody who does not admit, I carry guilt with me, and there is nothing I can do about it. I can make up for, I can try to make up for it, I can make all the best decisions in the world, but I can't change what I did to my kids, I can't change what I did in my past, I can't go back, and I can't unburden myself. That God cleanses us from an evil conscience and gives us a kind of liberty. A cleansed conscience, that's a part of the good news. That we don't just get a ticket to heaven, we're not just escaping condemnation, we are given this gift of a way of being so that God's word works so well and efficiently in our hearts as we go about our lives.
And that really brings us to like the, okay, the so what? I mean, wouldn't it just be easier to have a calloused conscience? I mean, that seems like the easier move. Well, okay, so the conscience makes me feel uncomfortable when I do the wrong thing. I don't like that. A callous conscience means I don't feel the thing. Isn't that better? You might think it's better. Seems like it's a shortcut in a way, right, to a simpler life. Don't feel a thing. The problem is you can't be properly human without it. It's why sometimes the biblical authors, the psalmists like David, will say things like, I was behaving like an animal when I was in those sins because my humanity is obscured through the calloused conscience living. Sure, it's, uh, it, might, it might actually be easier, but you're opting for a kind of slavery because in your mind it's easier. What you really mean is that it's simpler. I'm just gonna be a, a slave to sin and I'm just going to be ruled by it in such a way that I don't even know that there's something better that I can be and my conscience can be reformed by the Spirit and informed by the Scripture. I'll be brief here. Your conscience is reformed by the Spirit the moment you are born again. Right, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. All things, your mind, your heart, your conscience, it's new. God changes it, he reforms it, he fixes it for you. The Old Testament prophets talked about this in Ezekiel 36, in Jeremiah 31, that in the new covenant, it's not gonna be external, it's going to be internal. There's gonna be a change, God's gonna change our hearts, he's gonna put a new spirit in us, and he's gonna put his spirit in us, both things, right? New spirit, conscience, his spirit, Holy Spirit. He's gonna do all of this. That is reformed by the Spirit, but it also needs to be informed by the Scriptures because, as you know, as a Christian, it is easy to get off track. It is easy to indulge sin. Calluses can build up, and so we want our conscience to be informed by the Scripture so that we don't take our preferences and try to bind other people's consciences with it, or we don't take our freedom and lord it over others and try to get them to do things that their conscience says no to. It needs to be informed by the scriptures. And you know that. Romans 12, 2 and 3. It's the being renewed, right? Transformed by the, the renewal of our minds. Like there is this ongoing process by which God is refining and sharpening us so that things work the way that they're supposed to internally. A healthy conscience is reformed by the Spirit and informed by the Scripture. This matters because when your conscience is working well, right, when you live with a healthy conscience, you experience freedom and conviction, which leads to freedom and joy, which leads to peace. You have freedom. When, when, when you have a healthy conscience, right, that is reformed by the Spirit and informed by the Scripture, you are set free from the accusations and the false doctrines of the devil and of the world and of religious nuts or your family or friends that are constantly telling you that you need to be or do X, Y, and Z when the scripture simply says the opposite. We are free from false teachers and false doctrines and even we don't even need them to be external. We have, the, we have a false teacher inside each of us, right, that will, we, that will accuse us. 
My conscience is cleansed because I know my sins are forgiven. And when it convicts me, right, when it convicts me, that conviction gives way to confession and confession gives way to repentance so that I walk in that very freedom that Christ purchased for me. A clear conscience gives you joy and peace. Right? It's the, the ability to know that you're doing right. Do you remember that? I don't think I mentioned that in this service. In Genesis Cain and Abel. Cain is jealous of, of Abel because Abel is worshiping the Lord in faith and offering sacrifices. And of course, Cain is not worshiping in faith and God has no regard for his sacrifices and he becomes bitter and angry and he wants to hurt his brother. He wants to kill his brother. And God says to him, uh, paraphrase, why are you bothered, Cain? Why are you downcast? He says, if you do right, Will not your countenance be lifted? If you listen to that, that conviction, if you heed it, if you hear your conscience and do what's right, your countenance will be lifted. If you do what is right, your countenance will be lifted. Peace, joy, it comes from hearing the voice of God in his word and feeling it in our conscience and responding in faith and repentance wherever necessary. Freedom, conviction, joy, peace, these are all good fruits of the gospel. You experience them in large part in your conscience. So I hope that we will be a people, I hope that we will be a people who are sensitive to our consciences, that when we are wrong, we can say that we are wrong, and when we are led to, in a particular direction that the scripture does not specifically say, not going to eat meat sacrificed to idols, that we do so, that we heed our conscience, even if it's not a straight biblical issue, and that those who recognize their freedom don't mock or belittle those who obey their sensitive conscience. And I pray that those of us with a sensitive conscience don't attack those who have freedom. And here's the good news. In 16 years plus here at Redeemer, I've never seen it go bad. You guys have been a good example on this matter of conscience. Perhaps the, the, the more pressing danger for those of us that have been at it for a while is the temptation for our consciences not so much to become weak, but to become calloused, right? You study your Bible, you got the theology, you got all this stuff. I don't see tons of weak conscience Christians, um, but there is, certainly, there is certainly an opportunity for us to fall into a calloused or seared conscience. So we be careful there. And the way that we're careful is by living in community, to get community together, being open and honest, but staying close to God in his word by confessing our sins and the lordship of Christ and obeying God as we feel the weight of his commands in the conscience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to teach us all that we need to know in this life we want to know you and we want to do well. We want to honor you and glorify you. And we, like Paul, want to have a clear conscience before you and before one another. We want to be fully human, God. So we pray that you would accomplish great things in us. That you, the Lord of conscience, would unite us in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.